So these attitudes that women are, you know, more emotional, they have an emotional relationship to pain and that the cause of their pain is primarily emotional rather than physical, have been with us for so many centuries that they've, they're ingrained into and have also obscured medical knowledge, like clinical knowledge about the illnesses and diseases that we have. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. Well, what do we do on the podcast? Uh, we talk to wellness experts. Well, what do we talk about? Mm, wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Um, so we're talking about Eleanor Cleghorn, who is the author of Unwell Women, which is a book that I think is going to blow everybody's minds because it's just one of those things that's right in front of us. And I don't know, many people have considered it. I had not considered it. Medical misogyny, I think is the quickest way to say yeah, it. Yeah, it's a thing. We've all... We've all felt it. If you think we've all felt it without even realizing it, yeah, because it's just it's like the accepted, you know, normal. But she is a wealth of knowledge and uh, historian, I guess by trade. So she puts up, she you know, she shines a light on this history of women in the medical context, and it's just fascinating. It makes a lot of sense as to how we got to where we are. It does. I think it really, um, it fills in a lot of gaps that, again, maybe we hadn't necessarily consciously considered. But um, yeah, it, it, it comes as no surprise at, at this point that you know women are dismissed and chalked up for having the issues or complaints or illnesses that they have that are just so easily put into a bucket of like, it's hormones. It's, you know, you're fine. Lose some weight. I mean, we didn't even get to talk about, there's so many different areas to cover. I feel like pregnancy is an easy one because it just affects, mm -hmm. it's just such an insane vehicle, but we didn't even touch on menopause. I know. We didn't even get I to that, that part, but there is a whole, there, there's a lot um, in the book, Unwell Women, uh, but uh, check it out. Have a listen. We'll stop talking. It's really fascinating. And you know, if you have a vagina or if you know someone who has a vagina, you need to look. buy this book. Buy this, buy this book, share it, start a book club. Read it to your vagina. Read it to, <laughs> read it to your vagina. No, Eleanor, thank you. Amazing. Hey guys. So you may have figured out by now that Zoe and I are huge fans of functional mushrooms. And that's because their benefits are legit from increasing focus and concentration to helping you sleep and probably most importantly, providing incredible support for your immune system. And yes, that is actual science. You can check it out on our blog at earthandstar.com. But who doesn't need a little bit of extra immune support right now, if we're being honest? But anyway, the most important thing for you to know, actually, is that you have to have these fabulous fungi in your system every day in order to reap the benefits. So Earth and Star our new brand, is making it as easy as possible for you to get the amazing benefits of functional mushrooms every day. Like if you've got a serious cold brew habit, there's a can for that. If you love your afternoon matcha latte, then we've got you covered there. 
And if you're not like G-Love and you're not feeling the cold beverages, then how about a totally delicious dark chocolate bar that also helps you increase focus and concentration while satisfying your sweet tooth. And it pairs super well with red wine. So we at Earth and Star have created as many ways as possible to help you elevate your everyday routine because we are not asking you to add another pill or a powder to your very busy schedule of supplements. We just want it to be as easy and absolutely delicious as possible for you to get some mush love into your life. So check us out at earthandstar.com and get 15% off your first order with the code HTW. Well, okay. Officially, even though Zoe is wearing her referee stripes, I will welcome you to the show. Eleanor Clayhorn, author of Unwell Women. We're having a spirited and amusing conversation, but there's really nothing about this book that is amusing, unfortunately. It's all about a history of essentially what has boiled down to medical sexism, which actually is something that it, it feels in many ways, very obvious. Like, of course that exists because we're dealing with these types of misogyny and, and sexism in, in so many areas, but was not actually something that occurred to me until I started reading this book. So thank you for writing it. And once again, you know, peeling off another layer of what has become a very complicated conversation. Um, but I, we would love to just understand a bit about you and your background and, and what led you to writing this book in the first place. And then we can dig into the, the book. Of course. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real joy to be here. Um, yeah, I so I began writing the book in uh, 2019. Um, and so that was where the research began. But really, I feel like the impetus for the book sort of started just after I was diagnosed with a chronic disease called systemic lupus erythematosus, or just lupus as it's usually known, which is the most common form of lupus. It affects 90% more women than men globally. And I was diagnosed in uh, 2010, just after I'd had my second son. And while I was pregnant with him, had a, he had a heart condition, which meant his heart was beating really slowly. And so this was quite mysterious. It's quite rare. So they did, my doctors did various tests on me to try and work out there was something happening in my body that was impacting his heart. And it turned out that there was an abnormality in my immune system. So my immune system was sending a cell that was sort of attached to the, you know, little sort of signal box in his heart and it was causing it to slow down. But because I was pregnant and because there was a real focus on sort of saving my baby's heart, what this immune abnormality meant for my own health kind of just sort of drifted into the ether. So when I got sick, when my baby was nine weeks old, I had a heart condition also None of my doctors really thought initially to look back over my notes and say, okay, we found something odd in her immune system. Maybe that's now having an impact on her health. And I was in hospital for about 10 days and I was finally diagnosed by a rheumatologist who sort of put the pieces of the puzzle together. And then from then on, I got really excellent care and my disease could be managed. But before then, I think throughout all of my, most of my 20s, I was getting what I now understand are the characteristic symptoms of this disease, which include joint pain, sensitivity to the sun, a lot of fatigue and kind of joint swelling. And I would go to the doctors, you know, trying to figure out why I was getting these symptoms. And invariably I would be told, oh, you know, you're a young woman, you probably drink too much, or, you know, maybe you should lose weight or 
maybe it's just probably just hormones or, you know, you're anxious, you're work stress. I mean, one of them even suggested that I might still be growing at the age of like 25. And another another one pondered, oh, you, you know, maybe are you pregnant and not know it? So there were all these, every time I went to the doctor, I would get this, these kinds of narratives that felt sort of like I was just being accused of making a massive fuss. Um, so I think over those years, I just kind of internalized it and thought, well, I must be making this stuff up. So the diagnosis made that all it really clear that I wasn't, that there was something happening. My body was trying to communicate something. And it's just that no one was listening to those, that sort of language it was trying to speak. So I was a research, historical researcher at the time I was diagnosed. I was doing my PhD thesis in the field of feminist history, feminist art history. And so I had this impulse already to kind of look back to figure out where we were in the present. And although I was getting cared for really well with the lupus, so I was medicated, my disease was under control, there were still these really fundamental questions that the doctors just couldn't answer. For example, why I had the disease in the first place, or, you know, why this disease affects so many more women than men. You know, they just couldn't, they were just like, we don't know. We don't know what causes it. We don't know what will happen to you in the future. And it seemed like I just thought, okay, look, why? Why are we in this situation where we don't know anything? Where these questions that seem so fundamental can't be answered. So I started looking back through the history of lupus and I came across these case studies and clinical reports of women that just felt like me, like I really saw myself in their stories. So women who'd gone through years of pain and other strange symptoms only to be kind of frequently misdiagnosed, often with mental health conditions. And then eventually to see a sort of doctor who specialised in this disease and they're treated or, you know, they sadly lost their lives to it. And I felt this real kinship with them. I thought, okay, the, the dismissal and distrust of your own accounts of what's happening in your body, these, uh, this has happened to me too. This has happened to me as well. And it happens to people that I know, to friends, to my mother, you know, to relatives. This is something that it felt intuitively like it was an issue. And it seemed to me like it was a historically inherited issue. So, but it was really over the last few years that I started thinking, okay, there's a, there's an important story to be told here because questions around health, gender disparities in healthcare, I think have really been coming into the wider discussion, more into the public discussion. And it seemed like this was the right moment to tell the story, not just of what was happening now, but of how we got here. You know, how do we get to this place where women are suffering these disparities, especially around the diagnosis and treatment of some, you know, complex diseases that medicine still finds really mysterious. So how did we get here? <laughs> I mean, first of all, that's insane. And so, I mean, I actually have a friend who has lupus. It, it, it is one of the more, I mean, just mysterious autoimmune diseases, but God, that's her- horrific and terrifying, especially, you know, when you're pregnant. It's funny because so many issues come out while women are pregnant, right? That you never knew about before. Um, I know a handful of people, including my sister, you know, who think, oh, I had a heart condition or I had X, Y, and Z. And I never knew it was there until I, until I was pregnant because it just exacerbates everything. But Absolutely. I think that huge kind of hormone surge and then hormone dip. And if there's anything underlying, it can just get really triggered. But still, there is not the understanding. Like there's no kind of way to predict, especially if you 
if there hasn't been the right kind of investigation into your health beforehand that might suggest that something is underlying that maybe will be exacerbated or triggered by being pregnant. So quite often, you know, it's being thrown into these situations where we get really sick after pregnancy and we, and a lot of that I think also gets entangled with, well, am I just supposed to feel really bad? I just had a baby. Am I not supposed to be in pain and be exhausted and just not feel right? You know, so, cause so much, I think of women's pain, especially is just normalized. You know, we kind of, we're socialized to just accept feeling crappy, feeling in pain. So, you know, it is hard. It's hard to sort of pass out like these issues, these points at which, you know, we have to really focus in on what is happening in a woman's body at these times, like entangle it from these sort of normative ideas about how we are just supposed to suffer. Right. It seems like it's so easy to chalk so much of it up to hormones, like you were saying, because hormones themselves you know, represent this sort of great, you know, medical mystery. And I think certainly now we're starting to pay more attention, but there's still a lot to be unraveled. And it feels like just this kind of catch-all, like you were saying, you know, oh, oh, maybe you just need to lose weight. Maybe you just need to stop drinking. All of which sounds, you know, vaguely just sexist. Like, I don't know that very many men with unexplained symptoms would be told you know, that they have to lose weight and stop drinking so much as there might be actually, you know, some delving into what it is. And I guess part of that, as you explain in the book, has to do with, you know, historically, um, men are, are the subjects of medical research more easily because for whatever reason, and you know the reasons, but like, you know, because um, so, so their, you know, their systems are maybe more stable. There are fewer fluctuations. They're easier to study or it's just how history sort of unfolded, which I want to get into. But one question I had when you were just explaining all of your experiences, I'm just curious how many of those physicians and experts that you spoke to were women? None of them. Mm. (laughs) The only female doctor that I saw on my journey to diagnosis was in, I was waiting to have an MRI when I first went into hospital with the heart condition and I had a really young baby and I was feeding. And so I was just like, had this gown on waiting to go into the MRI and there was just milk everywhere. And I was like begging whoever would be near me to just like get me a pump. And out of nowhere, this woman doctor came and she just hugged me and she said like, it's horrible, isn't it? I'm just so sorry. So the she was the only doctor, but she wasn't kind of directly involved in my in my kind of care over that time, but she was the one who kind of came and just went, I know this is horrible. It's humiliating. I'm sorry. Yeah. But then interestingly, since I've been diagnosed and the specialist doctors I've had have all been women. So that's really interesting to me. Yeah. I, that, that is funny. How, so you've become, um, you know, you've learned from that experience. I've had similar experiences as well, where I've like suddenly look around and I'm like, oh, so many of my practitioners now are female. Um, which is not by accident. It, it took a while to kind of like wake up to the type of care that I was getting or the tone that I was receiving or, you know, this sort of like, oh, look at this hysterical little girl who can't, who thinks like there's something. I, I'm, Admittedly, I'm also a bit of a hypochondriac. So like, I get it. I do. 
I do like to You're go. not right. You're concerned about your health, and that's right. I mean, we just you know, no. She's like, okay. I basically just like collect um, practitioners and modalities. I like to explore what's going on. Totally. Um, maybe I'm slightly more in tune, but um, but yeah. I mean, actually, that is, that is um, you know, I I. Um, Personally, in my own pregnancy, I had two um, kids. The first one was breech. And, you know, I was in my, like, mid-30s. And so I had to have a C-section. And I went to a high-risk doctor who was great for so many other things. But then for my second pregnancy, I was like, great. So we're going to do this vaginally, right? Because why wouldn't I? And they're like, eh, you know, well, you're older. It's kind of risky. I was like, yeah, but there's nothing wrong with me. Like the only reason I had that C-section was because the kid was breached. So clearly we should try to do this like this way. And as much as I respected my, my high risk doctor who delivered my first child and it was not, you know, it's actually kind of a very difficult journey, but about eight months into it, I was, or seven months in, into that pregnancy where you typically would never shift um, doctors or, or an OB. Usually they won't even take you at that point. I wasn't getting like a clear enough answer from my OB as to how we were going to really execute this plan on avoiding a C-section and how are we going to like, like literally I was like, I want step-by-step and like detail how you see this unfolding. And he was just like, Ah, it'll be fine. It was just sort of like, we're, we're going to give it, you know, give it a go. I was like, that doesn't really work for me. In the old college try. Yeah, like that's <laughs> not convincing me that you're your game. And so I switched and I switched to, uh, it was actually a male and female team um, that specialized in, you know, like VBAX, which is like vaginal birth after cesarean. Anyway, um, I didn't even realize it's such a low percentage of women who I think it's like tw- only 12% of women get a, a VBAC, which is like kind of like once you have a C-section, you're just like written off and you will always and forever have a C-section. Um, but I guess my point is like it, with that example is just one of many where it was like, wow, I really have to fight for this, you know, for what I want, you know, how, how my own opinion, my own sort of understanding of my body and what it can do against this review i mean this ob who is just like he's like the doctor's doctor you know just so well respected and it's it's very intimidating it is intimidating and i think that there's so there can be such a paternalistic kind of set of narratives around especially around childbirth like you know you what so many friends have felt completely kind of derailed by what actually happened when they gave birth compared to what they knew they were capable of making the experience for themselves. Like, you know, things that happened around pain relief that they didn't feel they even consented to, or, you know, interventions that happened that they, you know, felt like were designed to kind of speed up the process rather than like, let it happen naturally. Um, So it's, it's like, you know, your brain, you're not like having your brain amputated. Like you've got, you have to say, but then you're expected to fight so much. It shouldn't be such a struggle, especially not at vulnerable points in our lives to kind of, you know, be put to push and advocate and research. And, you know, we should really be honored and respected when it comes to the decisions that we want to make. When, like you were saying, you, you know, you understood what you were capable of. 
Whereas the doctor's just like, "Mm -mm, no, we'll just, you know, we'll take this path because it's maybe something that he's just more familiar with or more, you know, but I think there is this just real kind of sense of invalidating a woman's like understanding of herself as much as it is like disbelieving her when she says that something hurts. Right. Yeah, the pain, the pain issue is so interesting too. I mean, can you talk a little bit about sort of the bias studies and, you know, how men and women are both perceived quite differently in a medical context when, when there is a male doctor? Why does that yeah. happen? How does that happen? Or what did you, what did you discover? About, well, in 2001, there was this really pioneering study called The Girl Who Cried Pain that was carried out by two academics at the University of Maryland experts in uh, healthcare ethics and in healthcare law. And what they did was they went back to around the 70s and they studied all the papers they could find, so clinical studies, also sociological research, into gender and sex differences and the treatment and diagnosis of pain, primarily of chronic pain that didn't have an immediate diagnostic cause. And what they found from examining all this data was that it was statistically shown that when women present with a pain to like an emergency room or a doctor's office, that they are much more likely to have that pain diagnosed as psychogenic or emotional and kind of therefore not real in a physical sense. Whereas a man would be perceived immediately to be suffering from a physical organic bodily condition. And then they also, that this is also where the finding that women are statistically more likely to be prescribed sedatives or antidepressants when they report chronic pain compared to men who are more likely to be prescribed opioids or analgesic pain medication. So one of the really important things that came out of this study is not just that, you know, there's an immediate gender stereotype that kicks in in the doctor's office that goes, okay, women, pain, it's imaginary. It's got something to do with a social and cultural bias, unconscious bias about the way that women tend to express themselves in relation to their pain. So, you know, women tend to, not all women, of course, but women tend to be much more social, much more emotional when they describe the pain, much more contextual. So a woman might think, okay, I'm in so much pain that I can't get my children dressed for school and take them to the school run. So they might express that. Whereas a man is more likely to say, I have a pain in my wrist and it hurt for a week. That's it. And so the objectivity of that sort of way of communicating is seen as more authoritative, is seen as more valid than a woman who might sort of emotionalize, as it were, the context of what she's feeling. So it's rigged against the kind of way that you express yourself. So, you know, you hear about like, is it worth kind of gaming the system by being like, okay, it hurts. It's hurt here. It's hurt for three weeks. I've written it all down, you know, because that sort of mode of communicating in that sort of dynamic between doctor patient is obviously the one that kind of gets you more adequate care. But I think the biases are so impressed. They're so kind of ingrained not just in that kind of social dynamic between a doctor and a patient, but also in the knowledge itself. So these attitudes that women are, you know, more emotional, they have an emotional relationship to pain and that the cause of their pain is primarily emotional rather than physical. have been with us for so many centuries that they've, they're ingrained into and have also obscured 
medical knowledge, like clinical knowledge about the illnesses and diseases that we have. So, for example, lupus for a long time was strongly associated with mental health issues, with women, you know, kind of having things like emotional instability. Like I read case studies from the 50s of women who were misdiagnosed with, uh, you know, things like melancholy and even given, you know, like a prefrontal lobotomy and electroshock therapy. But when what they were really doing was pleading with anyone to recognize the amount of pain they were in, but that was assumed to be, you know, a form of kind of hysteria. So without that, if, if the focus on women's pain had been as interpreting it as a real genuine sign of an underlying disease back in, you know, the 50s, back in the 19th century, when this really important knowledge was being galvanized, what, how much more would we understand today? That's what, you know, I, I'm always wondering and questioning about. It seems that our stereotypical prejudiced ideas about how women relate to pain and illness has, you know, it has had a really detrimental effect on the position we're in today. Well, and I think, I mean, to your point, again, in the book, like it goes back centuries. I mean, going back to you know, reading about the Middle Ages or reading about, you know, women, obviously when when um, the sort of epidemic of accusing women of witchcraft was prevalent. I mean, that's just so easy, right? It's just such an easy catch-all to say, you know, hysteria and sorcery and some sort of mysterious, you know, bleeding. And it just, I mean, the story writes itself. You trace it back so far, but but how did how did how did this all happen and and how I mean, how, how did it happen? What was the origin of it? I mean, you really, you really dug into just going back that far. And, and, but at the same time, I, th- I thought it was fascinating to see that like, even in the, what it was, what was like the 14th or 15th century, that there were women studying medicine. Yeah. Yeah, there were. And I mean, we, we sort of tend to look back on the history of medicine and medicine as a sort of sanctioned practice and medical, the creation of medical knowledge as being very male dominated because what we're talking about in terms of the history of medicine is the history of knowledge and who had access to knowledge and who was able to publish and who was able to train and go to school. Well, it was men. You know, women had to struggle to be legitimized in the medical space, even though, you know, throughout history, women have cared for themselves and other women. Women have created knowledge, really important knowledge around healing. And But it's just that the knowledge that sticks, you know, the knowledge that forms a kind of historical canon has been male. And before science and before medicine sort of became the evidence-based science we know it to be today, I feel like it was as much a social system of power, as it were, as it was, you know, a methodology about how to treat and heal bodies. And so from the very beginnings, I think in ancient Greece, which is kind of where the foundational texts in the Western scientific medical canon were written, you know, medical ideas about women's bodies were as much social as they were clinical. So in they reflected the patriarchal society of ancient Greece's ideas about the purpose of women, which was, of course, primarily to, to be pregnant to, and to be impregnated and to carry and bear children and to care for them. So the womb or the uterus, which is, of course, the, you know, the vessel for this, as it was understood then, is represents the kind of center of women's bodies and the cause of all of their illnesses. So I think what's really ingrained in medicine still to this day is almost this idea that 
women's bodies are not fully their own. You know, there's something that's going on in there that women themselves don't have control or of over or agency when it comes to, which has made it's made it so easy, I think, for the discounting of women's own kind of testimonies about their bodies to be invalidated because, you know, how do we understand what's happening in there? You know, it's not, it's not up to us to know. We're not the ones who've owned and created knowledge about it. You know, it's other people, it's men's business, men decide, men have been the authorities over this stuff for centuries. And although, you know, now diagnoses like, you know, your womb is wandering, if you're, if you're ill, you know, no one's going to tell your womb has wandered up to your throat and suffocated you. But the idea that you're not fully cognizant um, when you say it hurts and I know it, that that is not really a believable testimony is with us still, I think. It's still, it's still there. It's ingrained that we just don't know best when it comes to what's happening in here. And I think, you know, what I do in the book is try and link that back to a foundational idea that women's bodies were, were not their own, were not perceived as being something that they, they had autonomy, that we had autonomy over. Oh, and we are just walking vessels. We are just walking wombs. Walking wombs. Wombs on legs. Walking hysterical wombs. Yeah. Um, You know, it's fascinating. And I mean, it's even worse, right? We're talking about just women in general and and what we experience in this like medical context then and now. But, you know, you talk a bit about this. I thought it was fascinating. You know, we talk about pain, you know, how non-white women experience their sort of, however they engage with their doctor. I mean, there's, they're often sort of dismissed as, I mean, what is it? The savage, what, what is it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, in, in the, it's the savage, it's the civility issue that kind of, yeah, came up in sort of early 19th century, which where anthropologists claimed that there was this sort of civility scale that determined how much pain a person was capable of feeling. So highest up on the kind of civility and pain sensitivity packing order were white women, middle class, upper class, refined white women in terms of the like language of the day. And there was this perception that, you know, the more in very, very heavy inverted commas savage a woman was, that the less vulnerable she was to pain. And of course, we now understand these sorts of ideas as being, you know, an absolutely abhorrent apology for chattel slavery, right? Because, you know, you create this kind of colonial knowledge that it doesn't matter the abuses that you, you know, perform upon black bodies are, you know, they're justified because they don't have, you know, they don't feel, they don't think, they don't feel in the way that white people do. So these you know, very unfortunately, shockingly, but not surprisingly, these sorts of ideas also made their way into medical theories about how women experience pain and how much pain women are able to endure and suffer and how much, and also how seriously we take certain people's pain conditions as well. So we still see today, there was a study, I think 2016, about racial bias in medical practice that showed that so many, you know, interns and, and doctors and practicing physicians still hold implicit biases that, that Black patients have thicker skin, that they have fewer nerve endings, that they have, you know, that they do feel they have much higher tolerance for pain. So these, you know, utterly false racist misbeliefs are still with us. And we see the consequences of that in things like, you know, 
in in terms of women's health in like the woeful disparities in maternal and reproductive health for black women for example something that is you know thankfully gaining much more attention but i think at you know at other levels as well i mean lots of the chronic diseases that whether research has historically focused on white women endometriosis for example you know it wasn't acknowledged as a disease that could really affect black women until the 70s and a, you know a brilliant study at i think the university of michigan um revealed that in fact black women don't just experience endometriosis they also experience different kinds of growths of endometrial like tissue in their bodies at different places and they can suffer more severely from the symptoms of the disease so i mean the 70s that wasn't that long ago you know there is so much knowledge that was that was just excluded and not attended to that we have to dedicate to you know especially the health of black asian ethnically diverse women who have been you know given have been ignored the most when it comes to these histories. Well, and I think that I mean I mean you you know you started writing the book in 2019, but obviously this past year and now even just post covid when we're seeing, you know, issues surrounding vaccine hesitancy for example that are, you know, that are pretty predominant in BIPOC communities because there is a kind of historical mistrust of medicine and everything that you've just said lends itself exactly to explaining why i mean i you know it's it's not surprising at this point to learn that you know there's whatever statistic it is i don't know what it is today but i know we've seen in the last few months that communities of specifically women in bipoc communities are saying you know they're going to hold off on vaccine because and you've just provided the historical context for it it's unbelievable Yeah and I feel like the situation is very similar here in the UK as well and that we're seeing the most the highest levels of, levels of covid vaccine hesitancy amongst especially sort of I think women around the age of 30 and maybe a little bit younger a little bit older in women of color so black asian ethnically diverse latinx women and what's never addressed and I feel this is you know completely you know reprehensible what isn't addressed is the underlying reasons for vaccine hesitancy you know there are systemic issues that would you know prevent or make a woman of color be hesitant or skeptical or suspicious or fearful not just of a vaccine but also of a public health intervention right which historically have used the bodies of black latinx ethnically diverse indigenous women to as as essentially as experimental material you know and when there's this history of this you think you know come on can we not maybe what we need to do then is to create a culture that addresses takes seriously and validates these concerns you know that may be traumatizing young women of color away from protecting their health because they just you know these histories are not addressed they're not right they're not faced up to so yeah no yeah we're just trying to bribe everyone like mm. let's talk about the underlying issues let's just offer them like a free cooler or something yeah here's a car and some beer. <laughs> like, go get your vaccine but just like assume that you know they it's because they are not behaving themselves or something and they're not doing the right thing you know it's this i hate this kind of infantilizing language that comes around you know like they're irresponsible there's an irresponsibility around it no you know there's a deeper much more entrenched and much more traumatizing 
history to all this that, you know, needs to be faced up to. And if that was addressed in some narratives around vaccine concerns, you know, that would be a really great opportunity, I think, to, and also to address some of those concerns at a deeper level around sort of access to health or, you know, going to the doctors and the trust that has been, you know, really eroded there, especially for, you know, women of colour. Yeah. I think, you know, it's it's a question, obviously, of how do you do that, right? So how do you, I mean, that's a, that is a deep pain and trauma to sort of undo or to address, like systematic, like how do we change the actual system where, you know, we not only have more women participating in, you know, their own health in a medical context, but also, you know, non-white women. I think, you know, this far away. Yeah, it does. And it feels like, you know, this incredibly difficult mountain that needs to be climbed because the problems that we face and what we need to tackle is both cultural and it's systemic. So we, of course, need huge changes in the medical system in which, you know, male bodies and not only the standardized ones in terms of research, but, you know, they're also the most valuable. They're seen as the most valuable under capitalism, right? You know, the work, the labor, the, our participation in the world as women, as marginalized communities, as marginalized genders, we're not valued in that same way. So, you know, there needs to be like a massive shift in terms of priorities into, you know, what are the determinants of health? So it's long-term chronic illness, which is rising in women across the world but also mental health issues, also the impact of things like the of COVID and the pandemic, you know, the social impacts as well. And so it seems like that we just need such a massive, massive cultural shift that sometimes it can just feel daunting to imagine that change will happen. But what gives me hope is that you know, throughout history, women joining together, women forming community to share knowledge, to create community, to you know, share resources has been a way of really making change. So we saw it in the 60s and 70s where, you know, women protesting against the levels of estrogen in the pill and, and protesting for more transparent information around medications like hormone replacement therapy, that made real change. And those things began from women talking to each other about their bodies, about their experiences with doctors. And I think this can be, you know, this creates real change. Grassroots community creation and activism does lead to real change. So I think two things need to happen, a cultural shift. So new guidelines about how women are treated or how people want to be treated in doctor's offices and also more funding, more knowledge, more research that doesn't just prioritise, you know, the standardised male body or treat women, women of colour, marginalised genders as just subgroups that, you know, can be the subject of novel research. Like we need to kind of shift the lens and say, okay, now it's time for us to prioritise these people who've been undervalued, who've been ignored in the history of you know, health research and healthcare. Right. And when you talk about funding studies and research, it's sort of like, obviously that takes money. Mm-hmm. Um, where is that money coming from? It gets yeah, very political. Exactly. It's funny, you know, I, we, we talk, um, Erica and I talk often about sort of the, you know, through more of like a business lens and how men with money usually start venture capital funds to make more money and women with a lot of money doesn't matter how they got it well like more typically start some kind of like you know they donate it it's like which charity do i want to be associated with um so i can have whatever halo effect that will elevate my 
social status and my like high society kind of environment. It's a very different use of power, right? It, 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 and so it's funny, like we always say there's so few venture capital firms that are run by women. Maybe like less than 2%, I would assume. What, you know, and we're like, well, what have all these women just shifted? Like, get your money out of the charities. I mean, nothing against all of that, but like, for fuck's sake, can, oh, can a woman start a fund? And like, further to your point about research and, you know, funding and, and, and focusing on studying females with all their crazy hysterical hormones, like, can women put that money to use in that way? I mean, it, can, can there be a conversation around that and, and, and funding directly? Um, yeah, because you're so right, because it comes from money. Change comes from money. I mean, there can be all the kind of cultural shifts and a narrative and, you know, speaking out and advocacy, but real change comes from big money. It comes from dollars. And you're totally right. And I haven't really thought about that before, but there's this real model, isn't there, of like the female philanthropist who gives and gives and gives and, you know, isn't, you know, oh, it's not about me, it's about others. Whereas oh. men, you're, yeah, it's all love. I'm just giving and like the halo effect, like you say. And that I think is also really historical. Like women do good. Women do good when they're in positions of power, whereas men accumulate more power. And if that could be, if that could be marshaled in order to go, okay, right, you know, we can make money. There could be like, you know, some incredible kind of venture capitalists, you know, big old investment funds. There are plenty of rich people out there who want to invest money and women are getting, and the sad fact is that women are getting sicker and the people that are making money out of this are the wellness industry. You know, the wellness industry cite the rise in chronic illness and women across the globe as one of the biggest, you know, money-making aspects in the projection of growth of the wellness industry. And this is partly, I think, because the wellness industry offers something that modern med- that medicine, mainstream medicine doesn't, which is listening and the idea that you are, you know, taken seriously. But there is also needs to be, that needs to be egalitarian, right? There needs to be a kind of, needs to be democratic and accessible to all. And yeah, there could be some really, really smart money put into that. And I wonder actually whether it will come in the future in or in the very near future in the sort of this kind of health tech, femtech market where people are looking towards kind of AI solutions for like, you know, studying massive data in order to streamline diagnostic processes, in order to generate new understandings of like multi-symptomatic diseases. And I wonder whether this kind of technological, this sort of ambitious technological stuff related to health might be something where like women entrepreneurs and women, you know, fund makers can flourish because there's real possibility in that for kind of, eking out some of the biases that we're now having to face and to create new forms of knowledge that are far more intricate. And you could, you could also incorporate a lot of diversity into that because these, you know, these algorithms, I don't really know how algorithms work, by the way, but they're capable of like extrapolating from massive data, you know, and like drawing new connections and new forms of knowledge that, so it means you can't really argue that a woman's too kind of hormonal to be to have research designed around her because you've got something that's like more than human that can quite easily deal with that level of diversity, not a problem. So yeah, I wonder whether that form of, you know, if that's going to be the future, if we're looking at like AI health solutions, we're looking at, you know, precision medicine, whether this might be somewhere in which female entrepreneurs, female venture capitalist funders could flourish in the future. Yes. There's like a blockchain parallel in there that I can't quite connect. Yeah. 
yeah, it's like, <laughs> like the crypto equivalency. It's yeah. like so totally like non fungible like yeah. health token or something. I don't know. <laughs> The whole question about what do we do about this and how do we carry it forward? And maybe maybe it's just because this this week feels a little bit grim in terms of the news, at least what we're seeing here in the States around, you know, all of these just, I mean, hate crimes and hate groups that are emerging and, and politicizing us even further and this divide, at least in the US. But it, it does feel global, I think, at this point that it has you know, roots in political or even beyond political, just social belief mm-hmm. systems. I, I, I want to be hopeful that this is the type of thing that can actually unite across party lines because it's just, I mean, it's our health. But as we've already seen, I mean, COVID has not been able to unite across party lines. COVID has been deeply politicized. In, um, in the UK too, it's been deeply divisive. You know, you would think, I agree with you. You think it should, you know, it should have been dealt with by, you know, a cross-party kind of team and it should never have been politicized. And all the politicization of the pandemic has done is further entrench disparities, economic, social, health, you know, in the US and in the UK alike. And it's become this, you know, kind of political like prop Mm -hmm. over here. You know, our government simile is just like inciting culture wars and pitting, you know, groups against each other in order to kind of pass blame and not, you know, galvanizing any kind of real humanitarian response to anything. Right. It's still it's still pointing fingers and trying to figure out mm-hmm. who did it wrong, who yeah. fucked it up, and yeah, exactly. how we can, exactly. you know, somehow punish them um, and then come out ahead, which, you know, the reality, you know, when we're speaking about health is that nobody wins. Because unless we all figure out how to, you know, work together on something like this, and again, when you're talking about 50% of the population, women, it shouldn't matter what your belief system is in terms of your your political leanings. It should only matter that you're invested in the forward progress of your entire gender. And you know what I was saying was like, I wish that it was that simple, but I feel mm. disheartened in that it doesn't seem that simple at this point. It feels like heavy. It does feel very heavy. And I completely relate to that feeling of not necessarily hopelessness, but it's hard to muster the hope, right? I mean, I have it. I think, you know, hope is radical. We all know that, you know, (laughs) hope is a radical thing. It has no basis in truth or fact, but we have it anyway. And that's what, you know, I have to hang on to, I think. Well, I do hope that you writing this book and doing these types of conversations and and helping to spread the word is only going to forward the mission and and put, you know, put as many people as whose attention you can capture in the right direction. And I sincerely hope that there are more people like you who are casting, you know, some light on this topic and trying to move it forward. I'm curious, because I know you're doing quite a few of these types of interviews. How many male hosted podcasts are you doing? Do you know what? Podcasts, not so many. I don't think I've done any male-hosted podcasts. Male-hosted radio, yes. Oh. Male-hosted radio, I did an hour yesterday. Um, and then I've done quite a lot today that's all been, I think, all but one of the live radios has been male-hosted. Okay. And, you know, I, yesterday, before an hour of live radio, and in being interviewed by a man, I was a little bit like, <laughs> you know what? It was very... <laughs> So I just got really lucky with that presenter, but he was very, like, very curious and very accepting that this is the situation we're in and not in any way defensive and really kind of interested. And yes, yeah, so that's been my experience thus far with them. 
I mean, that's positive. Okay, that's good. Yeah, no, it was good. It was good to hear. I was not, I was like this. Here we go. Ready. I've done but it was work. really chilled. It was a good yeah. conversation. Yeah. I mean, you really have done, a, 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 you know, an exceptional amount of research. And it's so, it really is empowering to look through it, to look at it through this historical lens. I mean, because there's no other way to, to sort of like make sense of how we are in the position that we're in. I mean, it's mind boggling often. Yeah. Right? You I mean, know, the with- one that I do get quite a lot of hope from the fact that throughout this history, you know, it is grim and the sort of evolution and the building of the knowledge is enraging and infuriating. But all throughout that history, there were women, there are people who are resisting this, pushing against it, creating new forms of information, making really real genuine change. And that, that I think I find hope in by looking back and going, okay, look, we've always had resistance. We've always, you know, there's another way to read this history and it's one of strength and it's one of, you know, different form of power being used for good so yeah, yeah. I mean I, I think about just like the um did you have a did you have a midwife or a doula no I I had in the first oh no sorry my second baby I had a private midwife so yeah like a like a doula um because I'd had I just felt really like disenfranchised from the NHS midwife experience I'd had but I wasn't able to have the home birth I wanted because you know, of this, the heart condition that the baby had, but it was weird because I ended up, you know, delivering at home anyway, because it was so fast. So I delivered him at home with my own midwife. So it kind of felt, although it was quick and quite terrifying, I was also at home. It was basically what I'd wanted, <laughs> just it wasn't in quite the way that I'd wanted it to happen. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. I, I often, like we don't, uh, sort of talk about or elevate the work of doulas and midwives yeah. often enough. And I know, I mean, personally, if I didn't have a doula, it, it was just like, I wanted to bring her around and like with me to every doctor's appointment. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't yeah. matter what it's about. Like come to the optometrist for me. <laughs> it's like such a badass. Autom- optometry doula. <laughs> no, it's true. Go to the dentist. She, it was like, be my advocate. Advocate. She rolled in that room. I mean, it was, she was met with such resistance the entire way but she was so incredibly prepared and she was like, not phased. Yeah. She walked in. She's like, turn down the lights. You do that. She was just like, took total control. I was like, oh my God, like, you're just such a godsend. But yeah. um, you're right. There, there isn't enough. There's not enough respect, not enough. Yeah. Not really. Even I think written about how important it is that kind of advocacy is. Well, and I've often said, I don't think it should be limited to women who are giving birth. I think we all should have a lifestyle doula at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we should. We should have like health doulas, you know, like you, I'm, I'm in full agreement. Thank you so much for, for doing this incredibly important work. We wish you the best of luck and we will be sure to shout it from the mountaintops and share with, with everyone listening. So, Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been a real joy. I've loved it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at hgwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.